Well, let's um, go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will begin there in verse 19. And uh, we're going to look tonight at a kind of a randomly worded message in apologetics, uh, mixed apologetic approaches, how to be an MMA witness for Christ. We're not endorsing violence, but it's just a way that we can be prepared for whatever direction the conversation goes. So as you're turning there, I want to give you a statement by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with him, a great, great man of God who uh, really, really reached his generation for Christ. And here's what he says. Tonight we're going to talk about all these different approaches. And here's a statement that he made that I think would be smart to pay attention to. He says, I do not believe there is any one apologetic which meets the needs of all people. And as I said in the text of his book, The God Who Is There, I did not and do not mean that what I wrote in that book should ever be applied mechanically as a set formula. There is no set formula that meets everyone's need, and if only applied as a mechanical formula, I doubt if it really meets anyone's need, short of an act of God's mercy. So, once again, what we're going to study tonight there are certain things that we assume. Number one, it is assumed that we're praying for the person. Right? People are not syllogisms. People are not walking arguments, although some people are, in one sense, a walking argument. But they are a person to be loved and to be cared for. And it is assumed that we can do our utmost, but it is God who saves. So the pressure is off of us. Isn't that good news? That it's not up to us to go out and save people, but it's our job to sharpen our tools and to be ready for whatever a person may ask. To be ready, as our verse says in 1 Peter 3.15, to be prepared, ready to give a defense for the answer uh, to someone who asks you for the hope that lies within you. So let's go to um, 1 Corinthians 9.19-23. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, And here's the purpose, that I might what? Right, win them, or win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, once again, the purpose statement, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by, help me out, all means, this is where a lot of churches get hung up, by all means I might save some. I do it all. So here's here's the, the motivation, the heart issue. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you realize how much of a blessing we have in Jesus Christ? How much hope and how much purpose we have in life? The fact that He promises a clean conscience and that Jesus promises that us through Him we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. So, These Wednesday night sessions, what you are doing is you are, in one sense, you are loving people. You are preparing yourself, unselfishly giving up your time, so that you can get more tools to give people clues, to give them paths 
to lead them to Jesus Christ when they may have questions. So this is an absolutely important thing. And um, right here, how many of you are familiar with mixed martial arts? Okay, we've got a violent picture up there on the screen. Okay, you know that there are different styles, okay? For example, and if you're not a violent person here tonight, that's fine. We'll indoctrinate you here in just a few moments. If I am, let's say, for example, a boxer, that means I all I can do with my hands and I'm standing up. If I come against someone who is a wrestler and he grabs a hold of me and takes me to the ground, what's my problem? Everything, right? The world just turned really bad. I have no idea how to defend myself at all. So what I would need to do is to develop in my fighting routine a way to defend against wrestling. And think about this. If I'm a wrestler and I come into, I mean, a Bruce Lee type of striker, they can punch and kick and you just got hit and they're back where they were a moment ago. You don't even know what happened. What I would need to do is incorporate some stand-up fighting, ways to punch, ways to kick, ways to block, whatever, whatever it may be. So what we're going to do tonight is look at the five major approaches that people use in apologetics. And so this may be somewhat revealing. You may find out that you're a presuppositionalist. You may find out that you're an evidentialist. The way that you do apologetics. And let me say, uh, right before we jump in with two feet, I don't think there's any one approach that's necessarily better than all the others. I think the best thing for us would be to take high points and to prepare ourselves so that no matter what questions they have, tonight's talk will prepare us to be able to counter. Okay? Because sometimes if people come with an argument to say, well, there's not enough evidence, you can give them evidentialism. But if they begin to just say, you Christians believe this stuff with no evidence, then we go presuppositionalism and say, well, what is the basis of your belief? And in the end, we all assume things to be true. So, um, number one, we'll look at this, and this is, we packed as much as we could onto one sheet, almost to the point of being absurd, so there's like literally no places to write. And uh, number one would be the classical method. This is a two-step process. And the process goes like this. Number one, you use arguments that are heavily embedded with reason to establish first that there is a God. From the premise, from the foundation that there is a God, then you move to the identity of that God. Now y'all tell me, what is the problem if we simply establish the existence of God and that's where we leave it? Yeah. Sure. And I mean, yeah, that is exactly right. The options are endless, right? I mean, you could have the God of the Bible. You could have the God of Islam. You could have, you know, many gods. You could have kind of a detached God in the deistic sense who just winds up the universe and kind of sits back and says, well, here's my TV show, okay? So what classical does, number one, the existence of God, but it doesn't stop there. It goes from a generic God to the specific God of Christianity. So that within this approach, there's a strong emphasis on reason and logic and what is rational and so forth. So we'll look at the first uh, argument here. 
which would be the Kalam cosmological argument. We'll break down what that, what that is. And then the teleological argument, which would be fine-tuning. The moral argument, which I would just put an asterisk here. I think as far as just personal conversations, when you don't have time to sit there for two hours and go through detailed arguments, it is a great, great way to make an inroad for the gospel and the existence of God. And then uh, number four, the ontological Argument. So number one, the Kalam cosmological argument. By cosmological, we mean, anybody want to take a stab at that? Exactly. Yes, the cosmos, everything that is. And the first premise here is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Secondly, the universe began to exist. So third, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, can someone tell me an exception to, or something or someone that would not fit into premise one. Premise one being whatever begins to exist has a cause. Yes. Yes. God has not begun to exist. God always has existed. So this would be referring to everything physical, right? Now here's the second premise. Um, the universe began to exist. We've discussed before that up until the time of Einstein and the Hubble telescope where they observed the expanding universe, most people thought that the universe was eternal. They thought that stuff had always been here and that things had happened to it different times and that produced what we have today. So what this leads us to is, you may want to make a note here, Genesis 1.1. The universe has a cause. Why? Because the universe has not always existed. Well, how do we know that it has not always existed? Because of science. This is, this is such a, a great way when you're talking to a scientifically, philosophically, logically minded person. Because you say, look, this is a logically valid argument. And not only that, but science is telling us that these things are the case. It's a very, very powerful. It's pretty easy to memorize compared to some of the other stuff. But here's another one that's a little bit more detailed. It'll be the cosmological argument from entropy. Um, anybody remember what entropy is? Yes, yes. I mean, bodies that wear out, hair that falls out, you know, like the old Baptist joke about the Dunlop, you know, Dunlop disease. The guy said, my chest Dunlop, you know, lower. And it's just, you know, those types of things. And old cars... And old, I mean, mountains that are crumbling, the decay that we see. So, so with those thoughts in mind of a decaying universe that we can observe, once again, scientifically, here's the way the argument goes. Number one, if the universe were eternal and the amount of energy finite, and that's what we know by thermodynamics, right? There is a certain amount of usable energy in the universe. It would have reached heat death by now. And heat death would be, you got to, yeah, it gets really, ultimately, it gets down to zero Kelvin. And man, I, I don't know about you guys can handle it, the cold fine, but I've been freezing to death. I mean, good night. If you guys see me, I'm taking the dog out tonight to let her do her business. Daisy, hurry up. Daisy, hurry up. Bad dog, bad dog. Come on, you know. So it's been a strain on our relationship out there doing jumping jacks at night. So secondly, all right, so heat death refers to, you know, one good illustration here if you're talking to someone and that phrase may throw them off. You got your coffee, it's good, it's steamy, it's hot. If you leave it there 
for a month, it's going to go cold, and finally, I mean, it's, you're not going to want it at all. So heat death, all the usable energy used up, kind of like, you know, a mom after a day with her kids. I remember when I was, uh, my mom homeschooled all of us growing up, and my dad came home on certain days, and she'd say, Jimmy, it's your time to take over. And she would just go to the mall, or just go to the store, or go out in the woods somewhere and yell, you know, incoherently, I don't know, which, you know, her, her, her time. So second premise here, the universe has not reached heat death since there is still energy available for use. Unless you've been in a really dead church service, you know that... You know that the universe has not yet reached heat death. So therefore, number three, the universe is not eternal. Now let this sink in. We know that because it's not yet reached heat death and because there is only a certain amount of usable energy. Therefore, second conclusion, the universe had a beginning. Number five, therefore the universe was created by a first cause. And that first cause could not come from within the universe, like a physical cause. It would have to come from outside the universe, which you have to say, if you've got a universe that looks like it's put together in an orderly fashion, then there must be some type of intelligence that brought the universe into existence. So this is a little bit more of of an, I guess you could say, an intricate argument here. But this comes from that big, gigantic book that you could use as a bludgeon, page 226, uh, Doug And This is one that's really cool, and we're going to watch a short video on this. The teleological argument in Greek, um, telos means design or uh, structure. In other words, something has a certain point. It has um, a purpose. Jeremiah 12.10 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heaven. So tell me, in a very brief Bible study here in Jeremiah 10.12, God made the earth by his power. Think about the power it would take to bring into existence even just what we can observe right now. Universe being billions of light years across. I mean, you, you, you can't even describe how big the universe is. But not only that, who established the world by his, by his wisdom. And we're going to look at this video by Lee Strobel. It's a couple minutes long on probability and gravity and the fine-tuning of the universe. Strobel learned that life also hinges on the precise strengths and relative values of many different physical constants. One example of this fine-tuning is the force of gravity. Imagine a ruler divided up into one-inch increments and then stretched across the entire universe, a distance of some 14 billion light years. For the purposes of illustration, the ruler represents the possible range for gravity. In other words, the setting for the strength of gravity could have been anywhere along the ruler, but it just happens to be situated in exactly the right place so that life is possible. Now, if you were to change the force of gravity by moving the setting just one inch compared to the entire width of the universe, the effect on life would be catastrophic. No large-scale life forms could exist. Anything that was more than the size of a pea would be completely crushed. So you might be able to get life of a very, very primitive sort, such as bacteria, but you could never get conscious observers. 
The strength of gravity is just one of at least 30 separate parameters that must be finely tuned to produce a life-sustaining universe. Another example is the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant describes the expansion speed of space in the universe. If space expands too quickly, then the universe will spread out so quickly that material objects can't form. So you can't get stars and galaxies and planets and the types of things that we, of course, take for granted in our universe. Physicists have determined that the cosmological constant is fine-tuned to one part in a hundred million billion 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 billion. Such precision has been compared to traveling hundreds of miles into space, then throwing a dart at the Earth and hitting a bullseye measuring one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter, an area less than the width of a single atom. Just consider those two parameters, gravity and the cosmological constant. Their level of fine-tuning is to a precision of one part in a hundred million trillion, 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 trillion. I mean, that's like one atom in the entire known universe. Based upon just that two-minute segment, we could be rationally justified and saying that the universe is fine-tuned. Right? Now, once again, th this is just a two-minute clip on two... big picture of two very detailed aspects of the universe, and I think it's very rational that we could say that it's fine-tuned. So, here's what we can say based upon that and based upon this argument with the teleological argument. It, it's, it's, this is just the reason why we keep the big terms is in case you want to do more research on this or whether you get the theology book and you know what it's talking about although Ben has done a lot of reading on fine tuning so all the questions that you guys have um, I'm just going to defer that to Ben and he's going to be able to answer all of that I'm confident alright number one I love you Ben uh, the argument goes like number one the cosmos is designed secondly signs of design are evident now this is what most people will agree with you on. Even Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, he says that there are appearances of design. Now that's interesting. The most outspoken atheist in the English-speaking world acknowledges why he has to. To remain anything other than a nut job, he has to acknowledge that there's an appearance of design, but not really. In other words, it appears that DNA is designed, but then when you study DNA, you find out that it's not, which, if you've done any reading on that all at all, you know that is an absolute falsehood. Number three, these signs point toward the designer. It's designed. The signs of design are evident. Now, here's the question, and we'll get into this in just a few moments. For those who would argue that the universe is not designed, do you think, and this is just, just a, a probing question here, do you think that that is always an intellectual objection, or could there be a moral objection embedded in it? This is... Okay. okay, all right. And that then calls your own behavior into question. 
Exactly. You see, a lot of times, and, and once again, we don't want to play spiritual witch doctor, but, but we do want to be led by the Holy Spirit, who I think sometimes can give us the sense that this so-called intellectual argument is a smokescreen. That there is more here than meets the eye. And then we're going to get into another approach that you can take. A lot of this seems very intellectual, very cerebral. We can just take an approach that goes straight to the heart. We'll call it the Peter approach. It's known as presuppositionalism. And just, we know that they know God deep down within and just use that key. So number four, it does not claim, and this is, this is when they object to the fine-tuning argument, this argument does not claim that all structures and processes of this design creation now exhibit perfection. Okay? Now let's say if we just stopped with one, two, and three with the design argument, what are some rebuttals, what are some objections that you think people would probably rightfully bring up? Cancer. Cancer. All right, good. Just an overall decay of, you know, catastrophic events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why would anyone design a world like this? Mm-hmm. problems. Okay. All right. Good. One of the things, if you get into a, a really adamant atheist, they'll probably bring out the green emerald wasp, which the way that they... Um, reproduces, they uh, will get on the back of a cockroach and they'll kind of sting the cockroach and he'll turn kind of drunk and they insert their larva into the abdomen of the cockroach and the larva eat it from the inside out. And finally the cockroach dies one day and then they come out of that. That's pretty cruel. That's pretty bad. That's pretty messed up. But here's the thing, if you're talking to an atheist, say, first off, I'm just trying to establish the existence of God. The fact that they say, well, that's a bad design, they've acknowledged what? Exactly. So so lead them one step at a time. Because a lot of times when we see things like, you know, you mentioned George Cancer and things that that just operate... It's cruel. It's it's tooth and red tooth and claw. We want to defend the character of God, but let's help them realize what they actually just said. That a bad design in their eyes is still design. And the thing that we do as Christians when we acknowledge things such as cancer and the red tooth and claw is we say God created the world. Go old school Sunday school. See, once again, the gospel matters. God created the world in perfection. Man sinned. Man brought the corruption into the world, but here's what we go. Creation, fall, right? The fall, we're talking about the things they're objecting. They're objecting to, and then from right there, you spring to, but do you know what God did when he didn't have to? He sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ. And then we go from creation, fall, redemption, glorification. That's what we've gone through with our Sunday school teachers in the past. That's the four periods of the Bible, that all of it, it's right there. So you can use their objection that God is a bad designer to get them right to Jesus. So that's, once again, just one, one way to do it. We're still on the classical um, method, and here's the moral argument for God's existence. Number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do exist. By objective moral values, it would be something like um, torturing babies is wrong. Okay? 
a duty would be that I have a duty if someone is drowning or someone gets hit by a car to, to do what I can to help that person, for example. So secondly, objective moral values and duties do exist. Most all people will agree with us on this point. They will agree there are certain things. For example, rape is wrong. We don't need a legislature to declare it that it's wrong. We don't need to have a conference on the pros and cons of that. We just know that it's wrong. Number three, therefore, God exists. Why? Because we know that objective moral values and duties do exist. And if God does not exist, then who's to say that rape is wrong? Me? You? Our culture? Who cares? In the end, it's all relative. If you say that God does not exist, eventually and ultimately, values and duties, right and wrong, exist upon your opinion. And that's a scary world to live in. And here's the thing. Do all people do their moral, do they uphold moral values and duties? No. But virtually all people will agree that there are certain things that are wrong and certain things that are right. So you can, especially if you're talking to a younger person today that's very big, very conscious for things like sexism um, and racism and blatantly destroying the environment, not caring what happens for your actions, you can use those things and say, is it wrong to be a racist? Is it wrong to be sexist? And most all, even your very, very liberal younger people, yes, it is wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't be a racist. You shouldn't be that. Say, well... Who says, and in what sense, and in what situation? And we know that that leads us back to God. The ontological argument... Sometimes, just the person, and there are a lot of them, come back with, well, it depends. (laughs) Is rape wrong? Well, it depends. Is revenge wrong? Well, it depends. And they want to make their own set of moral guidelines. Right. Different situations. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people, I think the younger you go, the more prevalent it is for being postmodern or relativist, saying that right and wrong depends upon a culture or an individual or a time period. But in that case, I think often when you press people with things like rape and just taking out a, a live cigarette and torturing babies just for fun, most, I guess you're always going to find your exceptions, but most people, if they're honest, they'll say, man, that, there's something about that that's just wrong. And if a person is a consistent relativist that says, no, it is not right, or it, it's, it's okay in certain situations to do those things, it's just up to you if that's your truth. And then if it's in a public forum, I would go the way of saying, all right, so, so John right here has said that he has no problem torturing babies in certain examples, and in certain situations, certain cultures, he sees no problem with rape. So that's his position. I disagree. I think often we'd make friends and influence people for the gospel just by making that distinction. Yeah, if you can see how uh, society is degrading now because it's starting to be acceptable. It's starting to get, it's starting to yeah. change all our morals and values, and these things are starting to become more, more mainstream and acceptable. Like, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's in your face. It is in your face. Like it depends on what your definition of is. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think in that case when they just keep saying, well, it depends, and if that's what you believe, that's fine, that's your truth, but my truth is this. I think a a good retort for that is, well, you're saying one kind of truth, I'm saying a polar opposite, so what we're really saying is 
you believe there's no truth that you can really arrive at that's collective. And when they say, well, I guess that's right, then you say, well, you just said there's a truth that you can't know truth. Good. And then it just starts Good. from thinking. Yes. If they just won't come back, you know, if they just keep going with, depends on the situation, it depends on the situation, I think you can just mm-hmm. circle that back around. I've had it happen before. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, just to show that the non-contradiction of like, that is your objective truth, right? But there is no objective truth. You know, so, in the society, it's, just, it's, it's actually insane if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. They have the anniversary of Roman Wage was, was 40 years. Mm-hmm. 55 million abortions since yeah. then. Yeah. And yet they'll take my name and put it in a paper and publish it like I'm some kind of criminal because I have a, a gun, I have legally have a gun permit to carry but they don't put nobody's names in about it because we had abortion, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's what our society's yeah. got into, where right. a person who legally gets something through the judicial system, they're going to publish my name against some mm-hmm. kind of criminal. But they let, let these let these murders go, you know, and mm-hmm. abortions go, like it's no big deal. Yeah, so... And it just helps probably degrade ourselves. Yeah, it's an interesting verse in the book of Judges where it says it was that day in which every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So we definitely live in an evil culture. I think the first century had it far worse than we did to have an absolute, and we could go into the characteristics of Nero and to be in that subjection. We don't have it near as bad as they did, but in our culture at least we have freedom to still spread the gospel and, and join the NRA. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, second, the second approach uh, would be the evidential method. This is... This differs from classical apologetics. Classical goes to God first, existence of God, then to the identity of God. Evidentials takes one step to establish, and here it is, establish the resurrection, and you also establish the existence of God. Why would this be true? The resurrection is a mere invention of the law of nature, which only the initiator of the law of nature. Bingo, bingo, exactly right. So here's, here's what you can do with the evidential method when you try to establish the resurrection. Say, look, I'm, and we've, we've been over this before, but to use skeptical data, say, okay, what do all scholars, and there's going to be a few fringe extreme scholars that are not going to accept the historicity of Jesus, but they're not really in with the academic circles. Say, what do virtually all scholars agree upon? Number one, they agree that Jesus was a historical figure. Jesus of Nazareth actually lived. Number two, he was crucified by the Romans on a Roman cross. Number three, there was an empty tomb. Based upon that data, if you don't come with bias, the most logical explanation is that something happened that doesn't normally happen. And Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. In the first century, no one contested, even among the ones who wanted to keep Jesus dead, the Jews and the Romans. They all acknowledged there was an empty tomb. But then when you go to really weird explanations like, well, they stole the body, they went to the wrong tomb, nothing adds up. And you really can't explain the change in the disciples from being losing all their man points, having to turn in their man cards, and then even do like a hundred push-ups for being all alone in a room with the door locked to going out and Peter and John look. We don't care if you tell us not to preach. We will preach about Jesus Christ and the story of Acts. Absolutely, they're willing to die for it. So you can say, unless you're biased, what is the most logical explanation of the data that all scholars agree upon? 
Now, you can go to the Bible, but in this, if you're talking with a real arrogant, skeptical person, you can use their own stuff. So here's the objection. They say, but the Bible's untrustworthy. We say, first, we don't need the Bible to establish the life, death, and empty tomb of Jesus. Second, this I think is a very powerful talking point here. If you throw out the Bible as unreliable, you're deleting the best manuscript evidence in the ancient world. All right? There are over 24,000 New Testament manuscript fragments plus the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Old Testament. There are only 600 plus ancient copies of Homer's Iliad, and that's as good as it gets outside the Bible. Everything else drops off, you know, like the Senate's ability to pass a budget. I mean, it absolutely hits rock bottom. So if you throw out the Bible, you throw out all, and go ahead and use that word. Because if you throw out the best, you throw out the worst. Go, go ahead and say, you throw out all of ancient history, and ask them the question, say, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to say that we can't know anything of what happened from Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul, modern-day France, from his book and from other historical documents? You have to say that you're biased. So, Galatians 4, this would be a good one to memorize. 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amen. The Bible says that he was sent to fulfill prophecy, the perfect time, perfect place. And by the way, the more I study and the more I read, we're having to, for a class this next month, I'm reading David Hume, Anthony Flew, all of these atheists and agnostics, the more I say they don't have anything. The more just the old-time gospel is true. So number three is the presuppositional method, and it goes like this. Unbelief, now that you, you could write down next to this old school preacher method, alright? Unbelief, not lack of evidence, is the result of sin. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile or empty in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Presuppositionalism says that, you know what? It's not an intellectual issue, it's a heart issue. And they would say that the fall and the noetic effects of sin or the effects of sin on the thinking process are huge. Now think about it like this. If the Bible is true and we are fallen sinners and we're rebels against God, why do we think that we can reason properly? That's what a presuppositionalist will say. Now, I don't hold to all this, but here's the thing. If we are prideful, if we are naturally sinful and selfish, what makes us think that our rational faculties are actually going to lead us to the best evidence instead of lead us to the best evidence that will justify how I live? We've seen that before, right? People get involved in sin and all of a sudden they find a problem with the church. Or they find a problem with people that they know that follow Jesus. And it's, well, no, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying that the way they do such and such at that... No, 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 time out. It's not it. The reason why is because you want to do what you want to do, and you're do- using reasons, quote-unquote, to justify your sin. So presuppositionalism is based upon the fact that God's word is true, and that's where it begins, and that's where it ends. But here's an objection, all right? Mr. Miss, Mrs. Christian, you're guilty of circular reasoning. How can you ask me to believe in your presuppositions? Because here's what's happened. We come to person and we say, God's word is God's word. And they say, well, how do you know that? Well, it is God's word. That's it. Believe it. 
you know deep down in your heart it's true, you need to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. They'll say, now, you're basically telling me to believe in the Word of God because the Word of God is the Word of God. In that circular reasoning, here's something that you can do without even having to go to evidence like we did a moment ago to show that the Bible is something special. You can say, how can you ask me to abandon my presuppositions and hold to yours? A person who asks this, what, what could be any number of their presuppositions? And by that, we mean things that they just believe to be true about God, about the world, about reality, that they've never actually examined and researched. It could be a worldview, it could be a bias or a prejudice that would lead them not to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. Presuppositionalists would say sin. There could be all sorts of things. So here's what we're saying. Let's say that we're talking to a skeptic, a person who says, you know what, I don't believe that that's true or that you can't know truth. Say, now you, you're just a skeptic. Say, yeah, that's what I come to the table as, a skeptic. You say, well, I come to the table as a theist and a Christian. Why are you asking me to believe your presuppositions? You claim you're reasonable, but how can you trust your ability to reason properly if God doesn't exist? Now think about that for just a moment. Often atheists want us to believe that they are the ones who are cognitive, that they are the ones who are rational. But if God doesn't exist, what are some ways that you can describe the universe? Chaotic. Chaotic? What else? Meaningless. Okay. Meaningless. Pointless. Random. All the above. So when you talk to them, they say, we say, you, you don't believe that God exists. Well, well, how come you place so much emphasis and confidence, not only in reason, but in your ability to reason? Because what are you? What am I? We are the results of random chance. So how can you really say that the product of random, random, random processes of random chances put together over millions and billions of years can actually be capable of factoring things like some type of rational machine, you see. And what you can help them do is to see that their own presuppositions are really biasing them against holding to the gospel. So you can show them that they're not exempt from assuming certain beliefs to be true. Because often Christians are the ones who are crucified for saying... All you do is just believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. But for me, well, all people have presuppositions, right? Just let that sink in. Let them realize that they don't come to the table unbiased either. Here's a statement by John Frame. He says, But does this God exist, speaking of, of the Christian God, at some level of our consciousness we know that He does. We assume, for example, that the laws of logic and mathematics are universally and necessarily true. 2 plus 2 equals 4 does not just happen to be true, it must be true, and it is not true only in our part of the universe, but in every part. Now there is nothing in matter, motion, time, and chance that accounts for such universal necessity, but a personal God who himself is logical will naturally create a world that reflects his own perfect thought. Our assumption about logic fits the personal model of the universe, not the impersonal. Which means that the evidence of logic existing at all points to the existence of a logical God. And then finally, the Reformed epistemology approach. And this would be uh, more Calvinistic. And um, 
some this this is some powerful, powerful, great stuff here. Um, the claim is this: somebody says you're a Christian, you're irrational, and we say I don't need evidence to believe in God. Why shouldn't belief in that should be belief? Uh, yeah, yeah. Why shouldn't belief in God be among the properly basic beliefs? Now, what comes to mind if you hear someone say you don't have to have evidence to believe in God to be rationally justified? Okay, all right. That's true. Most often say we go to faith. But what if somebody came and they said, you know what, you don't have to have one argument to be rational to believe in God. In fact, you can be rational and reasonable to believe in God as a properly basic belief, such as there are other minds other than my own, unless it's a you know a two-year-old and they know everything. Um, the universe was not created five minutes ago with the appearance but the appearance that should be appearance of age, or you are listening to a talk on apologetics. You are reasonable to believe that that's actually happening right now and that you're not off in StarCraft somewhere being teleported to, you know, fight Ewoks or something like that, you know. Um, Chuck Norris is a beast, all right? That's a properly basic belief. Like five of y'all got that. Okay. So, so here's the thing. Just ask that this, this approach here, the reformed epistemology, is all about questions. Saying, why shouldn't belief in God be a properly basic belief? Why shouldn't it be something that would be perfectly natural and rational to believe? So here's three reasons why it's rational to believe in God without the necessity of arguments. Number one, few people have access to our theistic arguments. When we look at the history of the world, very few people have had... Five views on apologetics. Very few people have had access to the internet with William Lane Craig's site and so forth and so on. Number two, it seems that God has given us an awareness of himself that is not dependent upon theistic arguments. Think about the different things that God has used to bring people to faith in him, just people that you've known. One of my professors, two PhDs, William Dembski, brilliant guy. He was on the John Stewart show, or the, the Daily Show with, with, with John Stewart. And he's, Dr. Dimsky's very big into intelligent design and science. And John Stewart asked him the question. He says, well, was it intelligent design that brought you to believe in God? And Dr. Dimsky said, I was a little bit embarrassed when I thought about it, but not really, because he said it was the fact that I was a sinner and I knew that Jesus Christ had died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I repented of my sin, and I put my faith in Jesus. God can use things such as the grandeur of, of nature to bring someone to say there is a God. The, books, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So trying to say that we have to have arguments to believe in God is trying to put everything through a scientific um, model, and that's scientism, not science. Number three, belief in God is more like belief in a person than belief in a scientific theory. This right here, man, this is where you can absolutely open up the can of your testimony to tell them, you know what, God is my best friend. The Bible says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is all the world to me. And talk to them and say, look, it's not just I believe in the concept of God, but I have placed my faith in God, and He has promised to be with me. And let me tell you some of the great things that He's done in my life. We don't believe in an argument. We believe in a person. Arguments can lead us to the Lord, but they're not 
the point or the purpose. So finally, here's what Kelly James Clark said. Reasoning must start somewhere. There have to be some truths that we can just accept and reason from. Why not start with belief in God? Ask the question. Say, why couldn't it start there? We have to have evidence. What do you have to have evidence for? And then go through those properly basic beliefs. 90% of the world's population believes in God. Why should we have to be packed into a corner before believing in what appears to be the natural and the logical response to say design, designer, or simply, like Calvin said, the sensus divinitatis, the witness of God within through the conscience and through the external world. So, any questions there? You know, when they would need hmm. evidence to believe in his attributes. In other words, it would be kind of hard to, de- to deny that love or that any, any virtues exist. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good good route to go, but we know that the only way that those could exist is if God exists, because, you know, like loyalty doesn't exist apart from a person. Yeah, loyalty is not loyal to... Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Unless, unless they said, very end of the day, love is a biological process, and they would have to say to their mom, dad, brother, sister, wife, husband, I don't. What we have here, that can be boiled down to a formula. So love really doesn't exist. Faithfulness really doesn't exist. And if a person truly is consistent in that way, they will have no friends. (laughs) Ever. Ever. And like you said, Trish, we're wired for relationships. Ultimately, relationships in God. So...